Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of their voices and wishes to break overdue cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East. Season 5 is a collaboration between Musawa and Women of the Middle East podcast. As we will be discussing Musawa's latest book, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriage, Towards Egalitarian Ethics and Laws, published by One World Academic in December of 2022. My name is Amal Malki, I'm a feminist, scholar, and an educator. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This is season five. Justice and beauty in Muslim marriage towards an egalitarian ethics and laws is an edited book that is made of four sections with a contribution of 17 authors. It has been gaining lots of attention and building its momentum across different genres and fields since its launch in November 2022, which is merely uh, two to three months ago. In this episode, we host one of the book's editors who has also authored a chapter in the book, Dr. Mulki Al-Sharmani. Dr. Mulki, lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Our pleasure. Dr. Mulki, the introductory uh, chapter by by the volume's co-editors, you being one of them, provides an overview of the idea within the and connections with men in charge, rethinking authority in Muslim legal tradition, uh, published in 2015, and the concepts of Qawama and uh, Wilaya. Uh, it then outlines Musawa's um, holistic approach that combines Islamic teachings, international human rights standards, national laws, and constitutional guarantees of equality and acknowledgement of lived realities. Can you talk about um, this idea and how the idea of the book was conceived and what, in your opinion, is the contribution of this book to the fields of feminist theory and Islamic studies? Definitely, and thank you for your interest. Um, Well, uh, Musawa, as you know, is a movement, uh, um, you know, led by Muslim women uh, from all over the world. And we are interested uh, in uh, working towards the goal of justice in the Muslim family and specifically reforming Muslim family laws. We believe very much the importance of linking knowledge building with activism. Uh, and building rigorous knowledge that makes the case for uh, reform. Uh, and this book builds, as you mentioned, Dr. Amel, on our previous uh, project. In the previous project, uh, the Qawam and Wilaya project, uh, and which out of which came the book Men in Charge, we were interested in diagnosing the problem, getting to the substantive, found, the foundation of gender inequality in our uh, Muslim legal tradition, focusing on these two juristic concepts of Qawam and Wilaya. Now, in this book, what we're trying to do is to reconstruct we're trying to uh, explore possibilities. Can we have different conceptions of marriage, ethical and legal frameworks for a marriage, Muslim marriage, that is based on equality, uh, that is based on justice, that is based on the equal worth and the partnership of the two um, spouses? Uh, And if can we make that case again, based on a very solid knowledge from within our uh, Islamic textual tradition and because we adopt the holistic approach um, uh, we are interested in uh, in this book we have been interested in trying to engage and do research with the Muslim uh, 
legal tradition, textual tradition from all its different aspects. So the first, first section is on the Quran. We have scholars working on usul al-fiqh uh, as well as uh, Islamic law as a practice in the past and modern family laws uh, and Sufism. So it's uh, engaging with the Islamic textual tradition holistically from all its different textual genres. Our, our overall holistic approach also brings together Islamic textual uh, teachings, uh, um, human rights discourse, uh, the local and national laws and constitutions that affirm equality of all citizens. And the fourth prong of our holistic approach is the lived reality, which is what we'll be focused on in the second component of our research. So we're not done yet. Oh, lovely. So tell me, what is it? what would the second uh, part of the research be? Uh, it will be focusing on the lived reality. So we will be doing an ethnographic research in four Muslim-majority contexts from different regions where we're trying, again, to explore and investigate through a research, a research uh, ethnographic research that is, alternative conceptions of marriage and study initiatives for different models of marriage, different from the hierarchical model of marriage that we have in classical jurisprudence and which is reflected in many of our Muslim family laws. And so initiatives as well as life experiences. And we'll be doing this research in Egypt, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, and also in Somaliland. And Dr. Malki, the, the framework of Islamic feminism, um, the amazing uh, development is, you know, besides for Fatma Mernesi's work, of course, is um, the engaging with al-hadith as well, the Sunnah Nabawiyyah in this book, whereas there were um, attempts to centralize or ground the, the uh, argument of Islamic feminism within the Quran itself, uh, trying to avoid al-Hadith. What has been done in terms of adaptation to this firm framework to be focusing on al-Hadith as well? This is a very important question. Thank you for posing it. Um, yes, sometimes Islamic feminist scholars have been uh, critiqued for focusing too much on the Quran and not engaging substantively with uh, the Sunnah, the prophetic tradition, including the Hadith. Of course, uh, uh, Fatma Manisi, the amazing scholar, may she rest in peace, uh, was a pioneer in, in that area. Uh, and uh, our knowledge, uh, produced through uh, Musawa, uh, definitely because we believe in this holistic approach, we do and we try and we work on engaging with Islamic textual tradition from all its different, in its different genres. So even in our Men in Charge, we had a chapter on Hadith. This one, we, are ve we were very focused on very rigorously at engaging with all the different uh, sciences in Islamic interpretive tradition. So we, in the, for example, the second section, we do the Sunnah, we have scholars who've worked on the Sunnah as the Sira as well as um, the Hadith because it's very important since the, in, in the traditional is Islamic legal theory, of course, Quran and Sunnah are the two main sources of the law. And uh, also the important thing in this book is that we have one driving question that guides us all. We have a common uh, ground, right? But at the same time, we... Um, the authors, the individual scholars and authors uh, try to address that question from a, a, 
their own angle and from their own uh, perspective and using their own approach. So we very much also value and appreciate and foreground diversity in this edited volume. And hadith is absolutely important. So. Um, for example, uh, in addition to the section that you have in the book on the seerah as well as the hadith of three scholars, uh, the first one is co-authored by our colleagues Dr. Shada Rahmatullah and uh, Dr. Sara Ababna together. It's a co-authored chapter. And then you have two on the hadith by Dr. Yasmin Amin and Dr. Faqihuddin Qudir. And you'll find that they have very different approaches, but they are very much interested in the same question. And it was so important because often uh, people say, okay, well, uh, if there's if you have a hadith that on the surface seems to be um, justifying discrimination against women and even misogyny, what do you do with that, especially if that hadith is found in Sahih al-Bukhari? We have Faqihuddin Qudir in his chapter really engaging with that question and putting forward a very innovative and new methodology of how you can read the hadith but again holistically reading the hadith in light of the quran in light of the overall principles of the of of islam particularly grounded in the quran and also uh, drawing on certain important principles from usul al-fiqh so yes uh, engaging with the hadith and the different sciences in, in, the Quran, uh, in, in Islamic textual tradition and bringing them together is very much something that is important so that we can make the case for gender equality on a solid, rigorous knowledge and that's what we're trying to do. Exactly and I, I believe this is one of the, thing, the main things that this book has done and um, I foresee it also bringing different schools of feminisms and different schools of thoughts uh, together or uh, in conversation with each other. So for you as one of the central voices in discussions around gender relations and, and Islam and uh, gender equality, what does Islamic feminism mean to you and what do you think this book will be uh, contributing to in terms of bringing those multiple voices or a multiplicity of voices together? Yeah, uh, for me I think Islamic feminism is, is very important um, field of inquiry it's a very it's a knowledge project uh, and it it's interested in doing two things it's interested in uh, mapping out tracing uh, patriarchy religious patriarchy and and how it has been formed uh, how have authoritative patriarchal interpretations whether in the tafsir or in the fiqh or in modern family laws that draw from the fiqh um, where did they come from how were they formed uh, how do we have them and unpacking them so doing a deconstruction work but not stopping there also doing reconstruction uh, providing alternatives readings uh, not just egalitarian readings but also a methodology of how to read uh, our Islamic texts in a new way uh, so providing a methodological contribution as well as uh, uh, new readings and I see it very important uh, on several levels. It's important in terms of producing transformative knowledge that can contribute to policy making, to activism, to advocacy, and specifically to reform of the Muslim family law, and making sure that women scholars, activists, have a voice, have a role in the religious domain and in the production of, of knowledge. Uh, that's on one hand. But I also see it as contributing to um, Islamic studies uh, as a, an academic field uh, in terms of its methodological contributions and in terms of how it also highlights really the strong uh, relationship and of uh, between knowledge and power and unpacking that okay following up on this point how can we how can 
we make sure as a feminist community that this valuable book is actually mainstreamed across different levels and used, referenced and utilized by different communities across Muslim countries. So yes, we, this is a, an amazing contribution in terms of knowledge production to uh, uh, Islamic studies for sure, to a feminist and feminist theory, but how can we make sure that this reaches where it's supposed to reach to impact change in our societies? That is an extremely important question and in Musawa we are very much interested in that. We are interested in producing knowledge. We very much believe in the organic uh, relationship between scholarship and activism. It's not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but knowledge that hopefully can make a change on the ground. And the way we do that is our, on different kinds of activities. Number one, for example, for this, to give you a very concrete example, so this book, as well as the uh, men in charge, uh, it, uh, you know, that we've uh, produced what is called a feminist reader's guide. So short summaries of each chapter that has also questions, and then there'll be a reading group where people discuss the chapters. We have capacity building uh, uh, training courses that we offer all over the world, um, engaging with uh, uh, judges in family courts, lawyers, women's rights activists, university students. Um, journalists uh, to um, share with them, to disseminate this knowledge. Uh, we also produce policy briefs and uh, kind of like short briefs where we highlight the key points that policymakers or advocates can take away uh, from this knowledge as well as uh, videos. Uh, so it's absolutely necessary that this be mainstreamed and we do try to do that in the various activities that we do in as well as we've translated this book into Arabic by a very well-established scholar who also uh, a professor at Cairo University, Dr. Randa Abu Bakr, who already translated Men in Charge. Uh, and the Arabic book, uh, inshallah, will be published uh, sure, you know, in, in the coming months and there will be as well an Arabic launch. Dr. Malki, how can we distinguish between Sharia and Fiqh? Uh, in a manner that allows us to lay the foundation of an egalitarian Muslim family law. What's, what's the difference and where can al-ijtihad come in? Uh, you know, we believe uh, that uh, actually language is also very important. The concepts we use are very important and often they can be the source of the problem. They can, uh, you know, like uh, muddy the water. So um, just to give you a concrete example, when khula, um, this is the judicial khula was uh, um, legislated in Egypt in 2000. And this is a khula that allows women to petition for khula divorce uh, through, through the court. She doesn't have to have any grounds, no fault grounds. She doesn't have to substantiate any harm. But in exchange, she, and the husband's consent is totally irrelevant. It's not required. And But she gives up the dower and the post-divorce dues. Now, there was a big uproar in Egypt. And one of the arguments, religious arguments that was put forward was that, oh, this is against the Sharia. Why is that? Because in uh, the, the majority opinion among the classical jurists was it as they understood Khola as a kind of a divorce that women negotiate, a woman negotiates with her husband, therefore his consent is necessary. Although 
the the you know it's based on a, a verse in uh, Surah Al-Baqarah uh, uh, 2229 as well as a, a very famous hadith uh, prophetic hadith uh, where a woman goes to a Prophet Muhammad and tells him you know I, my husband hasn't done me any wrong but I just don't want to be with him and he tells her okay fine you're free to go but you just have to give him back the da'wah uh, so people would say in Egypt oh this is against the Sharia but what they actually meant was this is against a majority opinion in fiqh. Therefore, we are very uh, focused in, in, in um, Musawat. Part of our work is also to clarify uh, the concepts and the importance of conceptual clarity. So for Sharia is the path to God. It is the totality of uh, you know, the, uh, um, the ideal of what God wants us to aspire to. It, it is not reducible to law. It is not fiqh. Fiqh is the human understanding. It's this important knowledge that our past jurists produced in their attempt to understand the Quran and the Sunnah. And they did an amazing work, right? And they, But it's a human effort. So we can discuss it. We can revisit it. We can disagree among us. It is not Sharia. Sharia is the totality, the ideal teachings of God that we all aspire to. And lit etymologically, even it means the path to the water place, you know, the as we all know, those of us who speak Arabic, right? So, and the same thing, for example, for us, it's also to, important to highlight uh, another um, difference in, which is established in fiqh between mu'amalat and ibadat, you know, like, so things that go under the mu'amalat are, you know, can be revisited, can be, re whereas ibadat, which has to do with the deeds relating, regulating or concerned with uh, our relationship with God, the ritual specifically, um, this, there's no room for ijtihad there. Marriage definitely is under the mu'amalat, it can, and family relations, social relations in general, can be under the is under the mu'amalat, and therefore it can be revisited. So this is a very important question: concepts and the clarity of concepts, and uh, changing the language, clarifying the language, correcting the language is certainly a big part of our work. Um, it's what's interesting. Um is the khul'a was approved as a form of divorce in Egypt, if I'm not mistaken, in 2000. Uh, very recently, an MP in the Kuwaiti parliament uh, declared that al-khul'a is not an acceptable or a religious an Islamic form of uh, divorce and should be uh, banned in Kuwait, believe it or not, wow. in 2023. But that's, that's <laughs> yes, yes, the struggle goes on. The struggle goes on and as long as women are not seen as active agents in um, tackling or dealing with the sacred text. We are influenced easily by what men say. So if a parliamentarian says, you know, although, you know, he, he could have no background in Sharia, no background in Islamic studies, but because he's a man and he has priority access, let's say, to the sacred text, how can we make sure that women are educated women have access and know that they have um, the right but also the responsibility uh, of protecting their rights through having that access to the quran i mean that's so important that's extremely important and that is at the, the core of our mission and what we aspire for 
that women to be producers of knowledge, to be teachers, to be to have a place, to have a role in the production of knowledge and its dissemination as well. Uh, we try to uh, we do it ourselves in Busawa by through this collaborative work between different women scholars as well as men, men this, but also really uh, disseminating this knowledge and making it accessible through various ways in university settings, but also like these other mainstream uh, setting, um, uh, you know, uh, formats as we discussed uh, earlier. And uh, I, you are absolutely right. It is in, in really crucial uh, that women have that knowledge. I've done uh, research. I'm originally trained as an anthropologist and I've done research uh, in Egypt as well as in Finland you know on Muslim family law and specifically on women's engagements with uh, sacred texts and with laws and I have seen how uh, real through ethnographic research again and again how it really makes a big difference when women have the knowledge uh, of um, the laws uh, of the textual tradition of their rights knowing and uh, really makes a difference. There's research that proves that again and again. Another thing that we found from research, not only my own research, but other research done by many uh, colleagues in different parts of the world, um, and focusing on Muslim communities, is that women more than ever are hungry for religious knowledge and are pursuing it from various ways. But there are different kinds of voices, religious voices and religious knowledge. So it's it's incumbent upon us that we are out there and we pro, uh, provide that knowledge and make it accessible. Um, my final question for you: What are the challenges? What are the challenges you face as a scholar, and what are the challenges that Muslim feminists or Islamic feminists? Faith on daily basis to try to, to disseminate the, the knowledge. Just the, an example of this is this valuable book. What would you think the obstacles would be for you to disseminate the knowledge? Um, well, I think, uh, of course, sometimes um, it, it is known that in our part of the world, and I'm talking about the, the Arab world uh, as well, I would say in quite a few Muslim majority context, but let's, if, to be more specific, the Arab world, um, uh, the feminism has a very bad reputation. Uh, it is um, associated with um, uh, cultural imperialism. It is seen as something imposed from the West. Um, it is often, there's, uh, there's a very common reductionist understanding that there is one kind of feminism, and it's a feminism that comes from the West, that is uh, hates men, that is out to destroy our families and lead to a divorce and, and, and create this adversarial relationship between men and women. Um, and there might be that kind of feminism, yes, but feminism comes in all kinds of uh, uh, trends. And of course, we have to accept also and acknowledge that there was Western feminism that was uh, um, in, you know that enabled colonialism and worked with it uh, so we have that legacy in our part of the world also so sometimes the term itself uh, it might be an obstacle and we do have very important Islamic feminist scholars who they themselves have an issue with the term they they, they agree and they completely uh, are committed to the work the nature of the work the goal of the work uh, but they have an issue with the term you know and so that's one challenge so uh, sometimes I remember like 2015 I was in this meeting in Alexandria um, 
with uh, an NGO. It was a conf uh, an uh, like a, co a conference organized by an NGO, uh, and we had uh, ulama, religious scholars uh, from Egypt, from the Azhar, but as well as from other Arab countries, and we were talking about uh, in Arabic, Nisweel Islamia, uh, Islamic feminism, and there were a lot of resistance. Uh, what is this Nisweel Islamia? But once we got to the the core of the issues, like okay, what what do the uh, books of fiqh say? What does the Quran say? Uh, what are the general, the central principles of uh, Islam? Uh, how about now that we are nation states? What do our constitution say? How do we understand citizenship? And once we got to the substance of it, there was a lot of space and common ground where we could debate and discuss and agree. So it, one also have to be strategic, like if uh, because it, it's um, we can't also be talking simply to the people who be, are like-minded, like you know. Uh, so in order to create that constructive debate, we do engage with religious scholars. Uh, we've done it in Morocco. We've done it with uh, religious scholars in, in Palestine uh, through Zoom and also uh, in Egypt several times. It's not easy by any means. Uh, we try not to get bogged down with the terminology and terms about Nisway Islamia, but talk about the substance and start with the common grounds and try to have a constructive dialogue. The other challenge that we often have, uh, and I'm sure Dr. Amal, you're familiar with it also, is that we're told you don't have authority. You don't have, uh, uh, you're not traditionally trained. <laughs> Who are you to talk about these things? Uh, and um, yeah, and, and the, but then when we try to show and show that, okay, no, we've done our homework, we are as a as scholar activist, we've, we've done the work, we know the primary texts, we know the language, we know the methodology of the past jurists and the exegists, and, and you know, and we are trying to make, we are trying to make a case on a scientific basis. Uh, we make some headways, but there are also these uh, uh, challenges. So I think one way is to strategically, uh, um, uh, you know, try to be aware and cognizant, like who are we engaging with, what works, how can we create a common ground so that we can have a, a constructive dialogue with people who, who disagree with us so that we can get somewhere. Uh, but at the same time to be aware sometimes of the limitations and try to make headway in some spaces and be aware in other spaces it might uh, take longer. But I'm very optimistic also. So I remember that was 2015, as I told you, and there was a, a, this resistance. So what is this Nisway Islamia? Since then, uh, people have been talking about it a lot in Egypt and uh, there have been talks about it and right just before we started our conversation now I was doing I'm working on a book now about Islamic feminism and I was doing some research going through uh, the newspapers in Egypt and there was this uh, one of the magazines uh, has done like an uh, 17 issues and counting about Nisway Islamia, uh, Islamic feminism, which is very interesting. So uh, there are challenges, but I think um, uh, we, we, we need to uh, continue being in, uh, engaged, I would say. Yeah, and I think we, uh, you have uh, your heart in the right place because I love um, what you said about a scholar activist. Um, I think I want to adopt this, if you don't mind, from now on. Um, a scholar activist, exactly, as long as the knowledge we're producing is for the sake of uh, 
um, to better our communities, to uh, make the uh, a constructive change within our communities, um, then even our work and the efforts we put into books that take three and four years are worth uh, worth putting, I guess. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. I totally, and and also um, I I find this work with because you know I work at the University of Helsinki and I work uh, and I'm part of the Musawa. I really find it very my work with Musawa extremely rewarding on so many levels. Most of all, spiritually also. You know, spiritually, because we live, all of us, uh, Muslims, non-Muslims, we live in very uh, difficult times. And more than ever, I think we live in times where we really need to um, uh, find our ethical moorings and to be grounded in it. And to do this kind of work, um, I think, makes one uh, be aware of and what is relevant, what is important, and, and most of all, to do it collaboratively and, to, you know, and... Uh, and in a way that um, in a, uh, that helps us also uh, combat our ego because we're human nature, you know, and, and not to take ourselves very seriously and to be connected. And it's not just about me, but also what is what is good for all of us. I agree. I agree. Um, lovely. Thank you, Dr. Malki. Thank you so much uh, for being with us in Women of the Middle East podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure has been mine. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode of season five. To stay up to date with Women of the Middle East podcast, you can subscribe and don't forget to rate us. If you would like to contact me directly, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter or via email. This is Women of the Middle East podcast.